Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the About Tribu podcast. I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and you can subscribe, rate, and review to the podcast on any podcast platform of your choice. Make sure to follow the show on social media at About Treeview, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and also youtube.com slash About If you want to support the show, you can go to abouttreeview.threadless.com and pick up a t-shirt. That would be fantastic. And for full show notes, go to abouttreeview.com, and you can find all of the links to the movies and guests that are on the show. Speaking of guests, um, th- there are none this week, which means it is really weird because I'm sitting in my studio by myself talking to myself and it gets weird in here because it just is me and my thoughts and those are scary. Uh, but on today's episode, uh, I'm going to be reviewing a couple new movies that are in theaters as well as a new movie on Netflix. So those movies are going to be all the money in the world, Phantom Thread, and then a quick minute on Bright, which is on Netflix. So this is, again, where I would throw it to my guest and be like, hey, welcome to the show, but that there is nobody here, so I'm talking to myself. But before we get into the show, uh, we have to land the theme song. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Thanks again to Damien Randall of Ill-Mannered Media for creating that theme song. It is fantastic. Make sure to follow him at Damien Randall and at Ill-Mannered Media for all of your EPK needs as well as some audio engineering. All right. So going right into the show, this is going to be a smaller, smaller episode. That is not right. This is an audio medium, shorter episode. There we go. Uh, Mainly because I'm talking to myself. Nope. I'm talking by myself, but I'm talking to you. The dear listener. Uh, So right off the top, all the money in the world. Now, this movie is directed by Ridley Scott and tells the real life story of 16 year old John Paul Getty, the third, who was kidnapped in Italy and his grandfather, John Paul Getty senior at that point in time was worth two billion dollars. This billion with the B. So he gets kidnapped, they demand ransom, he refuses to pay it. So before I talk about this movie, uh, or rather before I review this movie, you cannot talk about this movie without talking about the controversy behind this movie, which is Kevin Spacey was originally hired, not just hired, was originally in the role of John Paul Getty. They filmed the whole thing. Everything was locked, loaded. They were working on final color corrections. And then some allegations came out of Kevin Spacey. And by some, I mean a lot of allegations with a lot of proof. So Ridley Scott and crew decided to pull all of the footage that Kevin Spacey was in, bring in a new actor, and reshoot a lot of this movie. The new actor they got was Christopher Plummer. Now, it would be one thing if you had to take someone out and replace them. It happens. Shooting schedules go weird. You need to do some pickups or some reshoots. 
Sure. Something like this, as far as I know, has never happened before. Where this is six weeks. This is how it all happened when they fired Kevin Spacey, pretty much, six weeks before the film is actually set to release. At that point, when the film is done and they're just working on those final things, the marketing campaign has been going, all of the trailers, all of the posters that say Kevin Spacey, and then they make the decision to get rid of him completely. So what they did, they called Christopher Plummer, who, first of all, fantastic actor. And they were like, okay, so this is, this is the situation. This is our plan. From there, they filmed Christopher Plummer's segments of the movie, which is they reshot something like three quarters of the film in nine days. That is madness of any scale of any production. If you get brought in to reshoot almost an entire movie and you have nine days to do it, absolutely incredible that not only did they do it, they still hit the release date that Ridley Scott was going for in the first place. They did not push it back two months. They were not going to do any of that. He was like, okay, this is the plan. This is what we need to get done. Go. So from there, it went off. Uh, Michelle Williams and Mark Wahlberg reshot all of the scenes that they were in with him. There are a couple scenes in this movie, maybe only two that I can remember, where it kind of looks like Kevin Spacey from the background. There's some shadow, some lighting. Other than that, anytime Christopher Plummer was in a scene with anybody else, those were all reshoots, except for one, I think, in the desert where they use some green screen. That is it. So this is a triumph of filmmaking, telling the story of the kidnapping of John Paul Getty III. Now, with all of that said, <laughs> the movie itself, if you were going into this movie and did not know any of that backstory, did not know that it was originally Kevin Spacey, did not know that there were all of these problems behind the scenes, did not know that they had to rush through everything, you would not be able to tell and that in and of itself is a huge achievement from Ridley Scott, not just Ridley Scott, everybody involved, the editors, the marketing department, especially by the time they announced Christopher Plummer was going to be taking over this role. They had new trailers out. They had new posters in the theater that I go to. It was incredible. The amount of work that went into making this happen. So as the movie uh, starts, I mean, you see young uh, John Paul Getty III, played by Charlie Plummer. No relation to Christopher Plummer. I definitely had to check that to make sure. And he gets kidnapped in Italy where he had been living. And from the trailers, you can kind of see how the movie plays out. Michelle Williams plays his mother, and she is incredible. She is arguably the strongest person in this film, the strongest portrayal, the strongest character in this film. She is the linchpin that kind of drives everything forward. Her counterpart in that is Mark Wahlberg, who plays a former CIA operative who, in, in the real story, John Paul Getty Sr., hires to kind of investigate and go over all of these things. He pretty much, I, I will not say that he phones it in, he just is completely uninspired. Mark Wahlberg is in the movie. He is easily, he could have been, recast or brought in someone else and it would not have really mattered 
which is kind of a shame because Michelle Williams in these scenes is just acting her butt off and doing really well. And then you have Mark Wahlberg kind of just there taking up space. So that was kind of weird. Christopher Plummer was fantastic as always. The boy who played or the guy who played the young son, uh, Charlie Plummer, he was he was all right. There's nothing really about him that really stood out or that screamed of this great performance. There were definitely moments of intensity because, I mean, he was kidnapped and he had to go through that. He gets his ear cut off at one point. Not really a spoiler because it actually happened. Uh, and you see parts of it in the trailer. So you see him going through that turmoil, but nothing really stands out. Like he was, he was solid, but that was, that was kind of it. Uh, now one of the kidnappers I actually really liked, and he was pretty exceptional. Uh, the actor's name, let me actually pull that up real quick. So Roman Duris. So he is an Italian actor played Cinquenta. He was great. So, and he kind of plays that sympathetic role where he knows that John Paul Getty Sr. is the richest person in the world, and yet he's refusing to pay the ransom. So, you have his character, Cinquenta, calling Michelle Williams' character, Gail Harris, being like, I know your father-in-law has money. Why is he refusing to pay? This must just be some trick. And he is trying to kind of keep those conversations going before worse things happen to John Paul Getty III. So overall, the movie had great cinematography. The score was pretty good. Michelle Williams was the highlight. It kind of plays fast and loose with the real story of what happened, but it was it was well done. I mean, it is weird to say that with with so much pause, but Ridley Scott did a tremendous job in just making sure that this film happened. Christopher Plummer did a tremendous job with what he was given. Overall, though, the movie did not blow me away. It was not something that even with everything going on and the whole time going into it being like, okay, was this reshot? Was this reshot? I think kind of took away from that experience. But at the same time, this is a gripping crime drama based on a true story that, I mean, a lot of people in my kind of my generation did not really know about that much because this happened in the 70s, 60s, 70s. So people from then remember it way more vividly than other people. So, yeah, uh, as I said, this episode is going to be kind of fast and loose. Kind of same with the way the movie did with the history. So the rating system for this podcast, there are three choices. And there's nobody in the studio to make fun of my three choices, a.k.a. the best rating system on the planet. Those three choices are good, bad, or ugly. A good film is something that you would recommend to a friend that just really satisfied you, you enjoyed yourself, uh, and you liked coming out of the theater happy. A bad film is something that you did not really enjoy yourself coming out of the theater, and you would not immediately recommend an ugly film, avoid at all costs. So for all the money in the world, absolutely this was a triumph of filmmaking. It was a little bit slow and boring in parts, But it was still a solid movie. And again, Michelle Williams is the linchpin. Her performance just sold this movie. So with that in mind, I give all the money in the world a good. So yeah, if this is is your genre, if you like seeing crime thrillers, definitely check this out. 
And if you just want to see some technical kind of brilliance in filmmaking, <laughs> that is in here with what they had to do to even make this movie. Uh, and that also Christopher Plummer, he is not a nice person in this movie, but he plays the character really well and really convincingly, especially when you can go on YouTube and find interviews and find conversations about this person. It was, it was pretty well done. So, all right, moving right along to a movie that I saw quite a while ago and then could not talk about for a long time because I wanted to make sure we saw it before our awards voting here in Seattle. That movie is Phantom Thread, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. This is one that, of course, is getting a lot of press and has been for a while because they were saying this is Daniel Day-Lewis's last film. When I say they were saying that, I mean he was also saying that, being Daniel Day-Lewis. So going into it, there's all of this hype, all of this energy behind it because we wanted to see this last performance and to see if it was going to be another Daniel Day-Lewis performance that would get nominated slash win an Academy Award. So this film is basically, it is set in 1950s London. Daniel Day-Lewis plays Reynolds Woodcock, who is a world-renowned dressmaker. And <laughs> world-renowned dressmaker, basically that nobody really likes, but they tolerate him because of what he does, because of the work that he is able to create, because of the art that he is able to give people. Talk about someone who is not very likable. Daniel Day-Lewis, as, as the character Reynolds Woodcock, is not likable. He is not a good person. And multiple people throughout the movie call him out for that. Uh, his sister is played by Leslie Manville, who crushes it. She is so, so good in this film because she knows her brother, knows all of his little eccentricities, knows all of his tics and whatever, and does not care. If they need to get something done and he is just kind of going about it the wrong way, she will call him out. That was great. But really what this movie is about is a relative newcomer, this actress Vicky Creeps. Uh, I probably butchered that. I even looked it up on YouTube to see how to pronounce it. She's from Luxembourg. So it is like creeps or something. Sorry, Vicky. Uh, you were fantastic in this if you were listening. But yeah, uh, if I butcher that name, my apologies. So she plays Alma, who is a small town girl who works at a restaurant who then is kind of thrust into high society living. Because she falls for Reynolds, he sweeps her off her feet, kind of, and then brings her into this world that she has never been in. And then we see the film through her eyes and kind of all of those eccentricities that everyone else has had to deal with that they put up with. Here's somebody who has no experience with that also dealing with it. And so we're trying to find that reason through her of why he is who he is, or maybe not even why he is who he is, but what kind of led him to that throughout the movie. And you have Paul Thomas Anderson, who he is a fantastic director throughout this film with his amazing storytelling techniques. The score is what really stood out to me. So Johnny Greenwood did the score for this. Johnny Greenwood is most well known for not only doing the scores of other 
Paul Thomas Anderson films like the master. Uh, but he is also the, I was going to say like guitarist, but he kind of does everything. He's a multi-instrumentalist for a little band called Radiohead. Yeah. So he knows what he is doing when it comes to music and how it can play to the emotions that you're wanting it to do. So in Phantom Thread, his score reminded me a lot of Jan Tiersen, who did like Amelie, Amelie and Goodbye Lennon, fantastic composer. Reminded me of that. It carried the movie through. There were scenes in this film, in Phantom Thread, that have this kind of breathlessness quality, where you're watching the characters interact, even when there is nothing going on, with the score that is driving the motion, the emotions forward, it was really kind of interesting. And it was surprising because some would say, and not just some would say, some have said, this movie is kind of boring. I could see that only when you, if you're expecting this to be more of a fast paced movie, then you're going to be disappointed because this is not, this is about a fashion designer in 50s so the whole pacing and tone and structure of the movie relates to that and again going back to the score it drives it forward but you have to be willing to put yourself into that experience to really embrace it so if you're having trouble with that i could see you i could see somebody not really enjoying this movie this movie is tailor-made to win best costume. And yes, that is a pun, but you cannot really see it because it is not in writing, but T-A-I-L-O-R, tailor-made, he's a dressmaker. Jokes are always funnier when you have to explain them, I found out. Uh, and if somebody else from the studio, they would probably ring my bell that is on the table, but nobody's going to do that. Uh, the costuming in this movie is absolutely incredible. At one point, because again, it, this is about a dressmaker. At one point, you see him kind of doing a a show or a, a runway style show in his house to potential buyers, to potential customers. They're just holding up numbers, walking through. Everything is stunning. Everything is just a set piece. And you are just looking at it being blown away. If this movie does not win best costume design, it will definitely, I mean, they don't really do second place. But this is going to be a really close race. I know that the Academy loves war films in general. You've heard me talk about it before. And if you do a period piece with the war movie, it will get nominated for best costume. Phantom Thread had the most inspired costuming of any movie this year. Because the whole thing was about making costumes. The whole thing was about making clothing. So I will be shocked if this does not win Best Costume Design of the Academy this year. Uh, but my pick is this one. So with the movie itself, uh, this this is a hard one. Because there are parts of this movie that I would hate to say are are bad. But there are parts of this movie that I think were unnecessary. The cinematography was gorgeous. It, I mean, it takes place, you know, London countryside and also kind of downtown London, as it were. So those parts were, were tremendous. It was beautifully shot. Paul Thomas Anderson has a way of working with actors 
and getting performances out of them that lead them to Oscars. He has a proven track record of it. So I would not be surprised if Daniel Day-Lewis, I mean, of course he will get nominated because it is Daniel Day-Lewis, but do I, didn't, do I think he deserves it for, for this, for Best Actor? Not really. Uh, as good as he is, the film just feels kind of lacking. And I think it, unfortunately, has a lot to do with, with him. The two supporting women in this film completely outshine him. Which especially when, take someone like Vicky, who I'm not going to pronounce her last name again, uh, take someone like Vicky who... Going into this movie, when you know and everybody else knows, this is, quote-unquote, Daniel Day-Lewis's last film. And not only do you have to be in scenes with him, you have to act against him through the majority of the movie. That adds a pressure unlike most things, and she excels. She goes above and beyond a, a kind of typical performance. Because there are other people in other Daniel Day-Lewis productions where you can tell that they recognize his genius and kind of play theirs down a little bit or do not quite rise to that level because they do not dare outshine the great Daniel Day-Lewis. She is fearless in her performance. Vicky is. And so is Leslie Manville. Together, they outshine Daniel Day-Lewis. And it made me question really why he chose this to be his last, if it actually is. This was not really that challenging of a role. It was not really something that kind of stretched his limits, you know, similar to like Gangs of New York, uh, There Will Be Blood. Those are challenging roles. This was really safe. So that was an interesting juxtaposition. Uh, but Vicky and Leslie, they were the stars of this movie. The score by Johnny Greenwood was absolutely fantastic. And Paul Thomas Anderson, it was incredible as a director. So my overall rating for Phantom Thread is good. I say that with a caveat, only in that I think certain people seeing this, certain people when they watch this, it, it might take them some time to kind of get into it. Because unlike some of his other characters, this one does not really pull you in. You want to know more about uh, Raymond Reynolds Woodcock, but really not as much as some of his other roles. So again, I just, I found it surprising that he was outshone in this movie. If he knows this was going to be his last, I was expecting him to pull out all the stops and it was just kind of a, a safe performance. So that was, that was pretty weird. Uh, I, I would not be also surprised if, in two years after Daniel Day-Lewis has moved to West Virginia and become a coal miner or something, that he does another film. I do not think this is his last. I think because of the nature of this film, I just, yeah, I feel like there, there is more to it. But overall, yeah, it was a good. So that was Phantom Thread. Next, real quick, I'm just going to talk about Bright, which is on Netflix. And you can sit at home and watch this. This stars... Will Smith and Joel Edgerton. The reason, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this film, I have been hyped about this film for months since they first announced it. And people were like, wait, is this a movie? Is this a TV show? Me, I did not care. 
if you put elves and orcs in a movie in modern day or even in a fictional past, guess what? I'm going to watch it. Now, when you put elves and orcs in a movie in the modern day with magic wands, with a whole bunch of craziness, of course I'm on board for this. Uh, I compared it to Shadowrun when I said I was uh, watching it on my Facebook page. Because Shadowrun is this tabletop RPG that takes place in the future, has these magical, fantastical elements in it. That is what this felt like. This was a very much kind of grounded, futuristic, mythological setting. I say grounded because it still felt real. Yes, there are orcs and elves, but it was not something where it was odd that they were there. In the course of the film, you kind of hear that a couple thousand years ago, you know, the nine races came together to defeat uh, the Dark Lord, the Dark One, you know. So with that kind of way in the past, it just kind of makes sense that everything is happening. Now, to my fellow film critics who were tearing this film apart, I just have to ask, what were you expecting? This is when you watch the trailer and you see magic wands, you see Will Smith, Joe Ledgerton as an orc. What were you expecting? The unnecessary backlash and dogpiling that I saw the critics doing for Bright blows my mind. This is not, nor was it ever going to be, this generation's Lord of the Rings or anything like that. It was not trying to be. This was a film, a buddy cop film, if you were. With orcs and elves, there was even a centaur in the background of one of the shots. I'm interested to see how those play a part in the next movie. It was just weird to see all of this backlash. And before they even announced, or before it even dropped on Netflix, the day before Netflix announced that this is going to be the first of two movies. So they're already going to make a second one before the critics started bashing it before everybody started making up their own minds. Netflix had enough faith in it. And they were like, you know what? This is fun. This is enough to kind of, we built enough backstory where we will green light a second movie. That shows some faith and dedication, but so many critics and some of my, my fellow critics here, even in the Seattle area have what seems like a Netflix bias where they do not feel like Netflix movies are quote-unquote real movies, and they feel like they should be put up to a higher standard if they're not in a theater and they're not a real movie. To that I say, get over yourself. Because it blows my mind. It bothers me when people are like, oh, it's only a Netflix original movie. It, it doesn't really count as a regular movie. Says who? Like, that, that makes no sense to me. So with Bright... Uh, going back to that, now that I just ranted on my fellow critics for a while, uh, this, this movie, they're basically this buddy cop drama. Will Smith has the first, uh, orc police, uh, member that, what is the <laughs> police officer <laughs> along with him. So it is kind of that, not even good cop, bad cop, just the, the misunderstood, you know, somebody just wants to be part of the police force and he is the first one. And then you have this grizzled veteran who does not want him there. We have seen it a million times before. So that part was kind of unoriginal. The story that they tell was really cool because they're in search of 
essentially what what they find out to be a magic wand, which even in the world that this takes place in, a magic wand is this mythological thing. Even in a world of elves and orcs and centaurs, they're like, this magic wand is the stuff of legend. It can do X, Y, and Z. That was cool because it did not really need to layer it too deeply. And even though me personally, I wanted more backstory of, okay, when was the war? How did the war happen? Who were the nine races? How many magic wands are left? X, Y, Z. That is just me. I went in, like I let the movie happen and let them kind of just roll with it. And so when you see everybody else in the movie react to the thought of a magic wand, the idea that there was one out there that could be available, that was really cool because it showed you how important that object was without needing to force feed you exactly why it is so important. Now, is this movie to the quality as far as makeup as a big budget blockbuster? No, but that is all right. What they did with the costuming was really well done. There were a couple times the orcs looked a little bit weird. One thing that was impressive, though, is anytime you put a dental piece into an actor's mouth, We still see it in vampire movies with the fangs and they still have a speech impediment. You really think if vampires were real, they would go thousands of years without learning how to properly dictate with those teeth? Come on now. Ridiculous. So in Bright, you have these orcs with two big uh, canines from their bottom jaw that come up. All of the orcs sound like it makes sense. So if there is a little bit of tonal difference in the way that they speak, it makes sense. It is still believable. It is not something that is so glaringly obvious that they have a mouthpiece in that makes talking really uncomfortable. (laughs) It makes sense. It fits in that world. And that was impressive. The production design of the movie was really cool. I liked the way they did with the elves, even though Edgar Ramirez looks a little bit weird in this just because i think because of the way his color contacts are overall the production design was solid to my problems with with this movie uh one of which so david ayer who is the director he directed a little film called suicide squad last year and yes before tim the people's credit corrects me yes oscar winning suicide squad i still think that is ridiculous but whatever So he directed this. As soon as this movie starts, this very well could have been Suicide Squad 2. The music sounded the same. The look and feel of the world sounded the same. But that obviously is David Ayer's wheelhouse. That is what he is comfortable with. That is what he wants it to feel like. So in that regard, it is successful because it is consistent with David Ayer's vision. Speaking of vision, though, Max Landis, the writer of of Bright, Max Landis is problematic, uh, to say the least. In this current realm of all these allegations going, you know, backwards and forwards and people getting dropped from movies, Max Landis has his own history that is problematic. But my biggest issue is in all of the films that he has written and in some of the projects that he has been a part of. For whatever reason, people of color only exist as stereotypes in his writing. And that is a problem. 
in this film, in this future film that has orcs and elves and mythological creatures, Will Smith is the only person of color in a main role that is not a blatant stereotype. And even his character is a blatant stereotype of just kind of that rough around the edges cop who is not accepting his new partner because they're of a different race, an actual different race. But his neighbors are, you know, the stereotypical quote unquote gangbangers. And he even says them, you know, calls them that there is a Mexican gang in the film, Latin gang. It, 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 it offends me when it is like, okay, so even in the future, in this mythological future, there are no women of color in important roles. Okay. There are no other people of color in important roles that are not stereotypes. Really, Max Landis? That is so ridiculous. And the fact that he keeps doing this and has done this multiple times is an issue. So with the writing in general, the story, like I said, was interesting. I liked the layers. I want to see more of what they do with this. But it does really bother me that there are just no people of color that are not just archetypes and stereotypes that we have seen a bunch of times. So those are my problems with it. Uh, but overall, I really enjoyed <laughs> this movie. It was silly at times. It was ridiculous. But I love seeing these fantasy worlds where just taking those D&D style things and putting it into a context where more people are going to watch it. If a D&D movie, Dungeons & Dragons, movie comes out in the next couple of years, which they are currently working on it, a lot of people are not going to see it. And that is a shame. But if you do a movie like this, where it pretty much is a Shadowrun slash D&D style thing, but with palatable characters, with actors that you know, more people are going to flock towards it. So the critics, and I say the critics, even though, yes, I am a, a, a film critic, so many critics got this wrong because I think their expectations for whatever reason were either way too high or they already went into it with a Netflix bias. So my official rating for Bright on Netflix is good. I enjoyed it. It was not spectacular. It did not do anything that blew me away. But it was solid. It was solid enough where I'm excited for the second one whenever that comes out. So, all right. So to briefly wrap up, so Phantom Thread, uh, I gave a good. And then going back to the first review, All the Money in the World also got a good. Uh, some upcoming stuff here in the About to Review studios. Uh, this week, I'm actually going to be another or a guest again on the Feelin' Film podcast. That episode will be dropping on Friday. I believe Friday the 29th, I think so, 28th, um, nope, 29th, so that will be about The Greatest Showman, the new Hugh Jackman, Zef, Zac Efron musical, they wanted me to come on there because they know how much I love musicals, they know how important musicals are to my life, so yeah, so that is going to be the Feelin' Film Podcast, uh, so make sure you hear that or check that out on Friday, and then the next episode of About to Review We'll be with Ian Dinsmore returning again from Drunk Sunshine, and we're going to talk about the films of 2017. So we will do kind of the goodest of the good, the baddest of the bad, and the ugliest of the ugly. I've had a year to come up with a better way to formulate that since the last year's 
goodest of the good, baddest of the bad, ugliest of the ugly. And I have not found a better way to do it. So we'll just kind of muddle our way through and talk about some great films in 2017 and then some terrible ones. So that will be for next week. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, I hope you had a fantastic holiday, whatever holiday you're choosing to celebrate. Even if you are not celebrating, I hope you got a couple days off, had a chance to go see some movies, hang out with friends, family. Thank you for making 2017 an absolute roller coaster of a ride that has been incredible. So that was 2017. Looking forward to 2018. My calendar is already starting to fill up with comic book conventions and film festivals and web festivals. So I'm going to be really busy in 2018. I could not do that. And I would not do that without the amazing support of all of you listeners for that. were here with me during 2017. So thank you so much. Uh, so for this episode, I have, of course, been your host, that guy named John. Follow the podcast on social media at about to review Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube is all at about to review about review.threadless.com buy some t-shirts if you so desire and you want to get someone a special something with your favorite podcast on it uh you can also go to the website about see full show notes uh thank you again to damien for the audio engineering and editing of this episode and all episodes and also for creating the original theme song so for that uh for 2017 it was great it was amazing Thank you again, and I will see you next year in 2018. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.